Good morning, everyone. I am Pastor Mark, and this is E3, and we are going through a series called The Six Symbols of the Gospel uh, that uh, is based on a book that, that Dr. John Bickley and I worked on together, just uh, musing about the importance of the idea of the gospel and how much of Christianity um, has truncated the gospel into uh, just the cross. And we talked about that last week, that a gospel that begins and ends with the cross uh, is not the whole gospel. And that's what this series has been about, is to enrich our understanding of this extremely important subject in the Christian faith of what is the gospel. And we started out with the uh, first symbol, the Star of David, uh, how the, the, the story of Israel is absolutely essential in the gospel. It gives us the context to understand why Jesus came to live and why he died and what we are meant to be doing now. That uh, we, then we looked at the Cairo and uh, the, that symbol that is the first two Greek letters of the word Christ uh, superimposed over each other. And one of the oldest symbols of Christianity uh, that reminds us, and we use that as an opportunity to talk about the importance of the life of Christ and, and why Jesus came to live but not, and not only to die. Last week, we talked about what I believe is one of the most misunderstood uh, symbols of the gospel, uh, and that is the cross. And if you've missed any of those, you can go onto our website and check on Vimeo and uh, catch up. Uh, this week, we're also talking about a very transitional and important symbol of the gospel, and that is the empty tomb. The empty tomb is, uh, is a symbol that has been represented in numerous stained glasses, and maybe even some of you have it on your screensaver, you know, images of the tomb and drawings and different things like this. And one thing that all images or symbols of the empty tomb focus on is what? The emptiness of a tomb. That, that symbol represents something. There we go. I like that. Thank you, Paula. And uh, uh, the reality is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that Paul writes this. And this is a very definitive statement. That, that really should, if we've never looked at, at the, the empty tomb with, with the, the weight that I believe it should, uh, should really kick us back a little bit on our heels. And this is what Paul wrote. And if Christ had not been raised, then your faith is useless and you are still guilty of your sins. I mean, that makes this symbol or really what the symbol is based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ is uh, arguably the most profound thing about our faith, that, that, that we do not worship a dead God, but a living Savior. Um, I wanted to share with you a, a quote from, from Tim Keller, uh, who's a brilliant thinker and a pastor and he wrote it this way, if Jesus rose from the dead, 
then you have to accept all he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about anything he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teachings, but whether or not he rose from the dead. I think with Paul and Tim Keller, and then uh, as, as John is actually going to be sharing some ideas today on, on the resurrection and what this symbol means in the Christian faith, that, that my, excuse me, my hope and my prayer is that we are able to feel the weight of this, <laughs> that, that we are truly understand the magnitude of what happened when Jesus conquered the grave. Now, I got to tell you, I've been very excited about today and uh, uh, John speaking about these ideas because I have been privileged to have interacted with him on the ideas of the resurrection. In fact, one of my earliest uh, memories of a, of a conversation with John was after a Easter Sunday, a Resurrection Sunday, where he came to me and he said, you know, you made some uh, interesting points and I think that they need to be developed. That's how I took it too, right? And uh, that kind of began this journey with him and I uh, and uh, really kind of unpacking this idea of the resurrection. And I think he was right, that, that there's so much there that, that we don't give the full weight to its meaning. And in my conversations with him and writing the book and in our conversations leading up to today, uh, I'm just, I've been looking forward to hearing him, him speak because I know that... Uh, this is one man who, who has given a lot of thought to this subject matter. Also, he has some life experiences that he's going to share with us that hopefully will uh, make the resurrection um, real and alive to you. So, if you guys will welcome Dr. John Bickley. I might have just turned myself off. Hello? Oh, good. There you go. Thank you, Mark. Good luck. <laughs> I, uh, yeah. Last time he said this is a holy moment in the 9 o'clock service, so the pressure was really on. At least he did say that. I'm the useless kind of doctor. Um, I can't do anything that really helps you very much. I, I'm a, I teach English and humanities at Bainbridge State College, so that's a little of my background. So I do something kind of like this on a daily basis, but it's not like this. Getting in front of a church... It's a great honor, and I, I'm, I'm thrilled to be here and uh, humbled to be here. You know, I, I've been thinking for a long time about God as a, as a God of paradoxes, and I think this is an, an interesting concept that the idea of a paradox is something that seems like it cannot be true, two things that are contradictory that cannot be true at once, but somehow they are. And I, th I think this is such a key to understanding of God, because this is I think it's a stumbling block for a lot of people in their faith where we have our limited perspective as a human being, our ability to, to grasp concepts. Um, but God is bigger than these things. But God is bigger than our minds and he's bigger than our understanding. 
And that so much that's important about God is in fact a paradox. And like a few of these are like, God is three, yet he's one. Uh, Christ comes and he is both fully human and fully God. These are not possible, right? These can't all, those can't possibly be true at the same time. Um, God is the beginning and the end, right? God is perfectly merciful and perfectly just at the same time. And these things, we can't wrap our minds around these things. We, we look at sin in the world and say, how can there be sin if God is perfectly good? And that's a paradox, right? God is all-powerful, he's all-knowing, but he also somehow affords us free will. Again, God is a paradoxical God. He's a, he's a God of surprises in the end. He's a God who, his story as he tells it, we cannot guess it. And it's fascinating with the, the empty tomb. I think this is probably the most paradoxical of all the symbols. If you look at what happened up to this point, the, the life of Christ, that ends not in him being throned as the king of the Jews, right? It ends in him being throned as in mockery, hung on a cross as the king of the Jews. All his, his disciples are in total disarray and in panic as they see the savior of the world die, right? This is, this is not the end people were expecting. And it can't be good, right? From their perspective, how could this be good? It can only be good if you have the kind of God we have, who again is a God of surprises and paradoxes. And the empty tomb reveals this really well. We've got some images. Uh, some of the, these are from like medieval, uh, medieval images, some of like carvings and some uh, relief sculptures. Uh, you can see like the sepulcher. Okay, so it's not like we're thinking of the tomb, but this is the sepulcher. Uh, we've also got a illuminated manuscript. shows the same thing. And this is the angel revealing to the three women that the, that the tomb is empty. And then we've got some from the Renaissance here, which this is actually more accurate from what, uh, what the tomb would look like. Uh, and then finally, there's another like sepulcher-based image. So these images, you know, as far as a symbol, this has been represented forever and has, has been one of the the major pieces of telling the story of God visually. And that's why we, we chose it. And it's interesting, you can see the placement of, of both the cross and the, and the empty tomb in the center of God's story. We're telling the story of the six symbols. And right at the middle is the massive turn where the world turns upside down. And this is a part of it. Um, one of the things we, we were talking about right in this book and comes out a little bit in this chapter, is this idea that we've got false paths to heaven. And there's, there's been one that's been the most dominant, which is this idea that we can save ourselves, this idea of self-realized holiness or religion. You know, we, we see this as the enemy, actually, of faith in the New Testament. I mean, Christ's enemy is not who you think it's going to be. It's actually the Pharisees who are supposed to be the most righteous people, right? His enemy ends up being the church, which is really kind of wild. And it's even, we have to constantly remind ourselves, we can become the enemy or something, right? If we become, if we start to see this as self-realized holiness, that's the key. It's, it's legalism, right? That's the enemy. And that's, that path leads to a false gate. That path leads us to a brick wall, right? It leads us to somewhere, ultimately, that's, that's not heaven. That's not salvation. That's not the message that Christ conveyed. He did not say, I come here so that you can save yourselves. And if you do the following things, you will achieve this. That's, a, that's the false path 
to a false gate. We've also got another one I, I kind of think about. Um, we've, we've got this sort of notion, and it's, it's a, honestly, it's a biblical-based notion, so it's good. On one level, it's very good. Um, this, in our minds, I think a lot of us see the gates of heaven as this glorious thing off in the distance that we're constantly moving towards, right? And this is something Mark and I talked about with this section, that the truth is, in the, rea- in the reality of like the daily walk as a believer, it doesn't feel like that, right? It doesn't feel like I'm moving towards this very obvious, glorious, shining gate of gold and silver with trumpets blasting and angels hovered over it. That doesn't feel like what's happening, right? I feel like that's not, that's not the gospel at all. Like, that's a, that's a correct perspective for sure. I mean, it's biblical. In the end, that's the truth. But that's not, that's not like a, as helpful of a, a reality, I think, that, that, you know, our ultimate goal really is, or ultimate, um, the end game in many ways is, actually. Um, and that, that image, I think, can easily be a, a prideful thing, where we, if you take the sort of the legalism false path thing, that I'm leading myself towards glory or something like that. And this, this is not, that's not the gospel, right? That's not the gospel. Glory is certainly in the end. It's coming. But I'm not doing it. I have nothing to do with that glory. And it's not, it's not so obvious because God is not an obvious God. I also have, I kind of just wanted an excuse to work in Dante. <laughs> but there's another, there's another um, kind of false gate, which is one that we're running away from. A lot of times, a lot of people, this is the fear gate, right? There's one that's pride, that people try to, try to like pull themselves up by their bootstraps and walk towards expecting glory. And there's another one that people run away from, which is, I think, perfectly pictured in Dante. Anybody actually read Dante? Inferno? Yes, high school. Okay, ni- the nine o'clock, apparently no one read that, and they all laughed at me. Um, <laughs> There's this moment, I always remember, the, the best class I ever took was I went, to, I went to Florence, studied abroad for like a semester, and uh, had this class on Dante, and it was the best class I've ever taken, hands down, because we actually got to read everything he ever wrote, and then walk to the place where he meets Beatrice, the love of his life, right, and saw the chapel where he first saw her, and lived, on, lived for four months in the streets that he walked. So Dante has this image of the gates of dis, which I think are really appropriate for this talk, and embody this idea of the fear that I think guides a lot of people too. Um, he, goes, he goes down into deeper and deeper levels of, of hell, and he eventually comes to the city of Dis, and there are these great gates to the city of Dis. And throughout the, the Inferno, Dante's constantly giving in to his fear. Like he, He'll have moments where he passes out, he can't go any further, and his guide, his spiritual guide, Virgil, keeps kind of urging him forward and telling him he'll, he'll protect him. So Dante gets this, the gates of Dis, and I've got some images here as he's going across. And the one before it, if we go back, you can see there's all of these figures, like the dead come to life, um, threatening him. On the tops of the gates are the, the Furies that have like Medusa hair. And they actually warn like, hey, Medusa's coming. And Virgil's like, don't look, don't look, right? So Dante decides like, I, can't, I actually can't do this anymore. I can't go. He's so afraid. He cannot journey even any further, even though God has clearly conveyed to him that he's supposed to do this thing. And uh, it's, it's a great moment. Suddenly, out of nowhere, comes the, 
the messenger of heaven, and he zooms down, and he waves a wand, and suddenly think everything goes quiet. All the din, all the, the chaos coming from the gates of Dis goes quiet. Everyone disappears. They walk through the gates, and it's pretty much empty. There's just like tombs, right? And I think this is sort of the false fear that a lot of times guides us, uh, guides a lot of people. And, and, and if, if your religion is based on fear, you don't, you run away from something, you don't run to anything, right? It's like a, you're lost in this sort of fearful state. And that's not the gospel either, right? So the gospel is not guided by pride and it's not guided by fear. These, this is not what Christ came and, and taught us and showed us. The true path, though, as explained in Matthew 7.13, this is straight from the mouth of Christ. The highway to hell is broad, and its gate is wide for the many who choose that way. But the gateway to life is very narrow and difficult, and only a few ever find it. Christ says, look, these other paths, the majority of human beings in history have taken those paths. The majority of human beings have tried to save themselves or are guided by fear. You know, this is, this is not what we're called to do. And it's a narrow path because it's a hard path. And yes, it leads to the gates of heaven, but it doesn't look like you, you think it's going to look. It doesn't seem so obvious. It doesn't seem so glorious in the midst of it, right? In fact, maybe it even seems like the opposite one of the things that requires this narrow road, right? We call this the narrow road. This is something we've been kind of musing on. Like, the narrow road implies a couple of things. One thing, it's like, it's easy to get off of it, right? And that's what usually is focused on. But the other thing that's kind of neat is it forces community. You can't get away from people on the narrow road, right? The broad road, you can isolate yourself, and you can go through your little walk, all on your own, and maybe never come in contact with anybody. But in the narrow road, we have all have to be confined in this little space for an hour <laughs> to help ourselves. We, the community of God has, it partly requires community, it, it requires community for fellowship with God, right? He, he calls us into fellowship with him and with others. And the narrow road is a great mental image for that. And I'd never really thought about that until we got kind of chatting about it. Um, and one of the things we actually just, just were talking about, you go, you know, we used to go on pilgrimage a lot. This used to be a Christian tradition. It's less so now. But one of the things that would always happen on pilgrimage is you meet people along the way. And that's this idea that in the journey comes community. And I think the narrow road, again, it, it forces that. It's, it's, a, it's an intimacy there with people that you can't avoid, and that is a great, great thing. So the true path is a narrow path. It's not prideful. In fact, it requires humility, right? It is not fearful. In fact, it requires faith. And if we look at that, we look at Christ's life, we see a life of humility, of somebody that gives up the throne and bows himself to the authority of man who has no authority on him and lives as a servant to the other disciples. And then we also see his faith in the Father. Like in the end, Christ is withheld certain knowledge. He'll say sometimes, only the Father knows this. He has to have faith, just like we have to have faith in the Father about how things are going to turn out in the end. Even the cross, he's, he's sweating blood for the cross. And this is, this is the model for our lives, right? This is the narrow road. This is what it looks like. It doesn't look like pearly gates. 
You know, it doesn't look like trumpets blaring. It looks, it looks kind of like death, right? So, you know, it talked a little bit about like some of the false gates, I think, or false images of the gates at least. But I, I had a moment in Israel that Mark referred to that I felt like I got a, an insight maybe into this concept a little bit. I, if, if anybody's ever gone to Israel, anybody gone to Israel? Yay, one, two. If you got a chance, go. I mean, it's, it's remarkable. You know, you see it in images uh, on, online or whatever, and you, can't, you cannot understand the effect of going there. It's a really powerful place. So I went on a 10 or 11-day trip to it, and we built up to the journey finally to Jerusalem in the last few days. And if, in fact, I think it was the second to last day before we flew out. We went on the 12 stations of the cross through the middle of Jerusalem. And you see the different points where Christ is beaten or the cross, the crown of thorns is put on his head or he drops the, he falls to the ground and drops his cross and things. And the last thing on this, which makes a lot of sense, is that you, you end up in the garden tomb, okay? So we took this journey, we end up in the garden tomb, and honestly, like, I did not expect much. I, I, I went in there, a lot of things that I saw there, you know, I was like, ah, eh, whatever, you know, this is a tradition, Catholic tradition, I don't even know if I, you know, this resonates with me. We got to the garden tomb, though, and there started to be, started to feel a little different. When we walked up to it, um, we had a, this great British guide, and he says to everyone, you know, gives this little spiel about this might be, many think that this is the, the actual garden tomb, uh, and he talks a little bit about it. Then he says, but the most important thing about this tomb is that it's empty, right? And he walks away. And he says, enter as you will. And so I'm expecting, okay, here comes the line. I'm going to have to wait for half an hour to get in there. There's like 40-something people. But exact opposite happens. No one takes a step closer to that tomb. Everyone steps away. In fact, I start watching everyone as they push further and further away, sitting down, talking together, some people crying. I myself was over, overwhelmed. I had to sit down and I just wept. I couldn't approach the tomb. It was a r- remarkable thing. Maybe after 20 minutes, I was able to walk over there. And this tomb, if we can show the image of it, here it is. It's a hole in the wall. This is the most inglorious place you've ever seen, Right? This is not, there's no fanfare and there's nothing beautiful. In fact, it looks dark and looks ominous. It looks like somebody died there because somebody did die there, right? And if, maybe we can see the, see the next slide real quick. And you can see, to get in this tomb, you have to actually stoop. You actually have to bow yourself to get in there. And inside is cramped and damp and dark, right? And I thought, you know, this, this is actually what the gate of heaven looks like. It doesn't look like we expect because God doesn't do anything like we expect. And it's not glorious and it's not so obvious. You know, it's a dark little hole in the wall. And it requires something we all hate, humility. And it requires something that that has been hard for the human race our entire existence, which is we have to face the reality of something in his death. This is, what, this is what the narrow road leads to. This is the thing that we're going towards. And this doesn't make any sense, right? 
And this is why, I mean, Christianity is not appealing to a lot of people because this is the reality of it. It's, it's a humble, self-sacrificing faith. This is what Christ taught us. This is what he did in his life. He goes to the cross in absolute humility, self-sacrifice, but he does not stay in the tomb. The tomb is empty. So this symbol, I think it's fascinating. It's, you look at it, and it's a dark symbol in many ways, right? It's, it is a symbol of death, like the cross. The cross is a symbol of death, but it's also the most hopeful symbol. It's something that, that teaches us that God has come to our level, experienced what we experienced, and he has actually faced the thing that, is, that has guided human, the human race for so long, or fear of death, and he, and he defeats death. This is a symbol, ultimately, of hope. And it, you can see this with the disciples, you know, that Christ is crucified, and they're the total chaos, total confusion. Even though he told them this would happen, they don't know what to do. It seems like their faith dies in an instant, right? And their faith would have died, right? But like with with Keller's quote, it's Keller or Heller? Keller, uh, with Keller's quote, he says, you know, if Christ is, is not resurrected, all of this is hopeless. Their faith is, is, is dead, and they remain in chaos, and the church never forms. But if Christ is resurrected, then everything changes, and that's what happens. So the symbol, it's not just a symbol of a tomb that's dark and terrifying, but it's a symbol of an empty tomb, which is hopeful and redemptive, and it's something that we can look to as a daily reminder of this. And, I, you know, the idea that this is a paradoxical concept, you know, uh, is, is clearly seen in this. We, we have life turned into death and death turned into life with this. God has turned the world upside down. In the middle of the story, he suddenly changes the equation of the world. What you think is death, walking towards death, is actually walking towards life. Giving up your life is actually taking on my life, which is something much greater and grander. This quote from Colossians 3.3 is a, a pretty good one here that expresses this. For you died to this life, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. We die, we hide in Christ like in the tomb, and that's how we come to life. That's the life of a, of a Christian. Uh, John 12, 23, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone, which is interesting, right? It remains alone. But its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. Those who love their life in this world will lose it. The whole equation for, for life and how we think of what it is to live is transformed in this, this moment. In the middle of the story, God changes it. The God of surprises. The other thing here, I mean, we, we, don't, we don't worship a dead God, a God that died 2,000 years ago. It wasn't a man whose, whose tomb we can go visit and his bones remain there, right? We worship a living God. And this is the, this is the most hopeful thing about our faith is that this is a living faith and a living God who can speak into our lives and can be a part of our lives the way that other religions can't, can't offer, right? And, and there's something, too, it's, you know, on sort of a smaller level, on a daily level, we look with our, with our eyes, and it's our human minds 
can only perceive so much. And we see these things in our daily lives that feel like they're dead ends. And God says, no, there's, they're not dead ends. I can, I can turn something around. I can create, I can put the whole host of heaven in that tomb. And when you stoop down and step in, you suddenly realize you're in heaven. And there's glory there. And God can do that like on a small level in our lives. That we can look at these things, we can be in moments in our lives and think, this is a dead end. I can't see there being hope here. But there's always hope here. And I think the symbol of the tomb is that for us. There is hope here in a way that we can't expect. And God can make things that can't seem to be possibly true at once true. I'm just going to pray for us and the band will come back up. Thank you.